Well, as a church, we are taking time together to uh, look at the new city catechism and, and ask some of the big questions of life. And today we come to question number 20, which says, who is the Redeemer? And the answer is, the only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. Now, church, that statement is either true or it is false. Right, good. You got, you got one right on the test. If that statement is false, then all this stuff that we call the Christian life is, is poppycock, claptrap, hogwash, baloney. But if that statement is true, if Christ is our only Redeemer, and, and if he is the eternal Son of God, if this man from Nazareth named Jesus is God in human flesh, if this man bore the penalty for your sin and mine, well then he is worthy of all praise and all worship. He is a person so beautiful and so interesting that we will never grow bored investigating his attributes, enjoying his embrace, savoring his kiss, and worshiping him in his blessing. We'll never grow tired of that. Now, one of the greatest novelists of all time is Fyodor Dostoevsky. He died in 1881, if you want a little context. He put it like this. He said, the most pressing question on the problem of faith is whether a man, 19th century, whether a man as a civilized being can believe in the divinity of the Son of God. That's the pressing question. Now, how many of us have flown either from Santa Barbara or Los Angeles to Chicago? Can I see your hands? God sees your heart. Wear a mask on that plane next time. If you do that flight, and if you have a chance to look out the window, you look down on what's called the Colorado Plateau. Anybody heard of that? The Colorado Plateau is kind of a geological wonderland that it has parts of Utah and New Mexico and Arizona and Colorado. And, and in that little area comes together an amazing array of, of wonders. Zion National Park and Bryce and Capitol Reef and Canyonlands and Arches and natural bridges and Beartooth and have you ever heard of the Grand Canyon? It's all there. And when you fly over this at about 35,000 feet, you look down and it just looks so small. But, but trust me, if you've never been there, come October 1st, get in your car and go. You could spend a month in that part of the United States every year for the rest of your life and not plumb the depths. And we're coming to a passage here in Colossians today that if we spent every Sunday between now and the first of the year, we would not plumb the depths. So what we're going to get in a few minutes is a high-flying view of this passage. There's one point I hope we get, and it is this, that Paul wants us to see, the Holy Spirit wants us to see and to savor the supremacy of Christ. He wants you and he wants me to, to relish the truth that Christ, in fact, is our Redeemer, that he loves us, that he himself is the final solution to our deepest desires and our deepest needs. And 
Accordingly, we're going to look at four truths about this Jesus that come from the passage. Just four. Uh, amazingly, they all start with a P. Jesus is preeminent over all things. He is the pleroma of God. He is the peacemaking Messiah. And he presents us to the Father. So look at these. Let's go to verse 18, and, and you'll see that great word, that, that he is preeminent. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, by this point in the passage, Paul has given us a veritable catalog of, of wonders about Jesus. He's the image of God, verse 15. He's the firstborn of creation, verse 15. He's the creator of the universe, verse 16. He's the goal of creation. He's before all things. He's the head of the church. He sustains all things. So why is the sun going to come up tomorrow? Because Christ says, come on up, son. But all of that builds to this conclusion, uh, kind of a climax here, where Paul says, all of this, that he might be what? Preeminent. Preeminent? How many of you use that word in the kitchen in the morning? Preeminent. That word has crept into the English Standard Version. It's, it's basically a Latin word that has just been put forward. It means to be prominent, to be surpassing, to be eminent. If you read the New International Version, it says that he might have supremacy in all things. Or the New American Standard Bible, that he might come to have first place in everything. We're getting the idea. The backdrop of the book of Colossians is that uh, a Greek philosophy that's called Gnosticism. Now, I know this is a little hard on Sunday afternoon, but we're going to have a little philosophy lesson. Gnosticism was kind of in the air that the Greeks breathed. And just two facts about what Gnostics believe. One, they believe God was way up there. So distant, in fact, that we could never know him. And the second thing that they believed was that matter, the physical world, was in fact evil. It was bad. So in their view of God, God is way up there. They, they believe that God kind of created a, a second God who created a third God, and literally thousands of emanations of God all the way down, and by the second century, some Gnostics were teaching that Jesus was one of those gods. Paul comes along and, and speaks to a church that is kind of infected with that vague Greek philosophy, and he says, you know what? This Christ is preeminent. He's first in everything. Gnostic teachers said that Jesus was one of these inferior gods. By the way, does that sound familiar to you at all? Have you ever had a friend who says, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus was a good teacher? Or, or maybe you've heard a sermon in the liberal church where Jesus is just a, a very moral man, a great example for us. Well, Paul comes along and says, no, no, he is preeminent. Preeminent with regard to what? Well, with regard to deity. Look at verse 15. He is the exact image of God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. 
Jesus is the image of God. But also, here's where Paul's being kind of sneaky, preeminent with regard to creation. Not only is the created order, the world and everything in it, not only is it not bad, Paul says, Jesus created it. And he tells us why. He created it for himself, for his own glory. Well, not only is he preeminent, he is the pleroma of God. Okay, 10 and under. Would you stand up real quickly? I just need your help. Real quick. Real quick. Promise. want you to say for everybody else, really loudly, pleroma. That didn't work. Let's try it. Yeah, okay, all together now. This is not working at all. Pleroma. Come on now. Yes! That's good. You, you get a prize afterwards. Thank you. Have a seat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to use the Greek word because it starts with a P. It comes out in our English Bibles as fullness. Look at verse 19. For in him, in this Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Remember just a minute ago how we talked about the Gnostics had a God who's way up here and maybe a few thousand emanations of God that keep getting farther and farther away from God? Get this. Sometimes the Greek philosophers referred to all of those emanations as, can you guess? The Pleroma. Paul takes that term and applies it to Jesus of Nazareth and says, in Christ we find the fullness, the pleroma of God. This is it. This is the one of Isaiah 25, the one we've been waiting for. The one that, that brings us this feast. Well, again, do the problems sound familiar? The Jehovah Witnesses will tell you that Jesus is but a created being. Mormons have a theology of Jesus that says there was a heavenly father with a heavenly mother and they consorted together and had a physical child named Jesus. Liberal Protestantism will tell you that Jesus is just a good guy, a consummate example for life and practice. Islam will tell you that Jesus is one of 124,000 prophets and in Hinduism, there are three billion different gods, and some forms of Hinduism will tell you that Jesus is but one of them. Paul comes along and says, no, no, Jesus is the pleroma of God. All of God's fullness was pleased to dwell in this man, God in the flesh. I like what Henry Ward Beecher said, if Christ is not divine... Every impulse of the Christian world falls to a lower octave. Church, all of our hopes and dreams, all of our faith hinges on this truth alone, that Christ is God in the flesh. So he is preeminent over all things. He is the pleroma of God. But look at verse 20. Now we find that he is the peace-providing Messiah. Amazing. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, how? Making peace by the blood of his cross. He provides peace. Now, 
we often think of men and women as creatures who naturally seek after God. And we often think of God as a God who naturally seeks us. And so in the evangelical church in America, we, 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 we talk about accepting Jesus as our Savior, as if we're doing him a great favor. Henry David Thoreau of Walden Pond was asked on his death, deathbed if he had made his peace with God. And he said, I didn't know we had a quarrel. The church, when we enter into the pages of scripture, we find a picture painted of a hostile relation between sinful men and women and a holy God. And the Bible teaches us that sin has so altered our mind and our heart and our will and our spirit that we naturally run away from God. When you think about Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, where Adam and Eve have sinned against God, and there's that great picture of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam hides from God. And we have been hiding ever since. In fact, we have every reason to hide. And here's an uncomfortable truth that makes this verse all the better. God, in his holiness, is angry with us because of our sin. Romans 8 says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. Romans 5 says, before we came to know Christ, we were enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Now you see the grand accomplishment of Jesus. Do you see it? He made peace by the blood of his cross. He, he's the one who swallows up death forever, Isaiah 25. Again, to our main point, Paul is calling us to see and to savor Jesus Christ. Well, one more. Preeminent over all things, the pleroma of God, the peacemaking Messiah. Look at verse 22. This Messiah presents us to the Father. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh, reconciled us, by his death in order to present you, what's it say? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Wow. So I had the privilege of being a pastor at Santa Barbara Community Church for 39 years. And I did between 350, 400 weddings over that time. That's a lot of I do's. And I, I took and will take in the future... I take weddings really seriously because you got a couple and two families and it's a very important event, wouldn't you agree? And I was always early and I was always spiffed up and I had everything ready and I, I took it very seriously, except for one time. <laughs> I, I was getting ready for a wedding. I, that morning I'd been playing tennis for about three hours and then I came home and did some yard work and I hadn't shaved. And I went down to my office in the backyard to print up some notes for the wedding, make sure I got the names right and all that stuff. And uh, the invitation for the wedding happened to be sitting on my desk. 
It's the only time this happened in 39 years. I realized I got the wedding off by an hour. And I looked at my watch. The wedding was going to start in 10 minutes. So I ran upstairs and I said, Lisa, the wedding's at four, not five. Ah! And, and so I, I just threw on my suit over my dirty body, didn't shave, tried to make my hair look like it had combed, and she drove up to the church, and I put my shirt on and got my tie tied, and we got there about seven minutes after four, and I thought to myself, if I fake it, I can get away with it. So I got out of the car, and hey, it's kind of about, don't you think it's about time we start now? And we got started, I don't, I'm not even sure they ever knew. Don't tell them. I want, to, I want to tell you something about what Jesus does for us. He does not do that. <laughs> he does not dress up people who are deeply flawed and scrub them up a little bit and put some clean clothes on them and then present them to the Father. He doesn't do that. Jesus imputes his righteousness into us so that when he presents us to God, he presents us as we really are. Righteous in Christ. Is that good news? We're not clothed with a nice suit and a shirt on and whatever kind of makeup you like to put on. No, 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 no. His righteousness is given to us. Paul says, God made the one who had no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. Preeminent over all things. The pleroma of God. The peacemaking Messiah who presents us to the Father as righteous men and women because that is what we have become in Him. Can you trust this one, this Jesus? Can you trust him over all of those little gods that will never satisfy, the, the little gods of pain-free living and, and having enough money to get through and a perfect diet and getting over the COVID-19, having the right status, getting the right politicians in office, all those little gods. Can you trust this one? And not those ones. Jesus Christ is the fullness. He's the fullness that you've been looking for, that I've been looking for. Seek him. Savor him. Treasure him. Spend time with him. Read about him. Talk about him. Pray to him. Tell him of his greatness. Beg him to reveal more of his sweetness in your life. Amen. Amen.